is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You worked for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. The nation. This is America. With your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and it's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we've been away for a little bit. We had a little bit of scheduling issues with the production of the podcast, and we've been busy with the radio show, but I'm glad you're here and you've stuck around, and we've got a, a lot to talk about. I want to talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, this was a... Um, uh, a very, very um, studied man, uh, a gentleman that served time in the gulag, and uh, he himself was a communist, was a Marxist. And I bring up Solzhenitsyn not because he was one of the um, biggest anti-communist thinkers of the 19th, 20th century, but because I think what he talked about back then is still so relevant today. And in fact, I think it helps to interpret so much of what we see in the news, what we see in the media. And Solzhenitsyn oftentimes called it exactly like it was. For example, I've got a, there's a bunch of quotes from him, uh, but one of the quotes that he's got here is, in keeping silent about evil, in burying it so deep within us that no sign of it appears on the surface, we are implanting it and will rise up a thousandfold in the future. We then neither punish nor reproach evildoers. We're simply not protecting their trivial old age. We're thereby ripping the foundations of justice from beneath new generations. I mean, it's self-explanatory to me, but I think we see this today. We've become so apathetic. People say it's voter apathy. I say it's general apathy, right? The fact that crime can can persist the way it's persisting in big cities like New York. I know some people just say, oh, but there's always been crime in New York. It's a, it's a big city. You can't stop crime in big BS. I grew up in New York. That's not how it works. Let me explain. When I was a little kid, uh, I remember there were there was lots of crime in New York City, and I would ride the trains with my mom, and that's how we got around. You know, you jump on the train. The train near me was the D train and the Q train. And he, so we'd either go into the city, downtown Brooklyn, or to Coney Island. And for the most part, everything was okay. But when crime started to spike, I noticed that difference. And I remember my mom talking about um, the safety patrol group back then with the Red Berets, the Guardian Angels, led by uh, Curtis Sliwa, who later became a colleague of mine. But when I was a kid... These were, you know, the, the, the people that were keeping the train safe because the cops were outnumbered by just thugs in the streets that were willing to do anything. And again, it was because the, the cops weren't empowered by the mayor at that time. And that's what comes to mind immediately for me when I think about what Solzhenitsyn saying in how if we don't hold the evildoers accountable, this goes on to allow them to multiply their years and to, in effect, take away or, or doom the generations to come. And, and that's so true. And all you have to do is be forceful, uh, right? You have to take a strong approach. Like Dinkins took a backseat to crime. Giuliani came in, cleaned up the city, and he was a tough talker, but he, he meant it. People knew this was a guy who had taken down the mafia with death threats. This was a guy who attacked the FARC, the um, uh, Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias Colombianas, right? I think that's what they were called. I could barely say that. Uh, but the FARC, and uh, they were um, a terrorist group out of Colombia, narco-terrorists. And this is, uh, you know, so he was this tough-talking uh, federal prosecutor, district attorney, and people were were 
were serious. They knew he was serious and they were they were serious about being careful around Giuliani. So he cleaned up the city and it continued into into the Bloomberg administration beyond 9-11. And it goes to show you that's what happens. Now, people argue with me every now and again. They say, you know what? Trump isn't so tough. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Look at what everything that happened. Uh, nothing happened in reality. Right. There weren't any new wars. There wasn't any major provocation. And and I do believe it's because whatever you want to say, oh, because they thought Trump was crazy. Whatever they thought is irrelevant to me. What What's real is that things didn't happen, whether they thought he was crazy or whether they knew that because of his bravado or his ego or his tough talk or his tough stance, that he would take action on things. And it just makes me think about, and I'm jumping a little all over the place here, but it, it all comes full circle to me uh, with good versus evil here. We're talking about this drone that they're saying, oh, collided, bumped. You know, the media tries to soften the blow oftentimes for what really happens here. And typically for Joe Biden and his ineptness, his his weakness. And when you see the video of this, it's absolutely clear that the Russians are not playing games, right? They went out of their way to very aggressively take a chunk out of our drone. I think in any circumstance, any other country would presume this is, uh, you know, an attack. You've just attacked a U.S. military drone. And uh, that could have been a man drone, an unmanned drone, a plane, a base, right? I don't think we, we should, you know, if you, if, you, if you attack a police robot car or a police car, um, they're going to give you these, um, the, the same charges that they would if you were attacking the police station. It's the same public property destruction charge. So uh, the arson charge doesn't change because it's a police car versus the police station. So my point is, this should be taken seriously, and it's not being taken seriously enough. So what we're doing now is exactly what Solzhenitsyn said. Um, he's, you know, Eve, uh, quote again. Inside us, uh, this is the same one? Shoot, no, here it is, in keeping silent. Right? In keeping silent about evil and burying it so deep within us that no sign of it appears on the surface, we're implanting it. So we're currently implanting the evil in order to cover up for Biden and Solzhenitsyn continues and he says, and it will rise up a thousand fold in the future. He's right. This is only going to get worse. What do you think Russia is going to do when they find out that they could be as aggressive as they were? Just watch the video. I put it on social media at Rich Valdez with an S if you want to see it. But what do you think they're going to do when uh, they can go ahead and it's the equivalent of like, you know, going across the hall to shoulder check somebody in an empty hallway? You know, think about high school or whatever. Uh, this was a very clear provocation. And they, they want to see how far they could go. This never happened under Trump. And, and it's not because I'm a fan of Trump. It's because Trump did it the right way. Jimmy Carter was also weak. And we saw that. And guess what happened? As soon as Ronald Reagan was elected, he brought the hostages home from Iran. Because people will take advantage if you let them. If you don't let them, they won't do it. And Solzhenitsyn's uh, approach to this was, I think, not only uh, on the money, but it comes from an understanding of evil and good. And I think that's important. And I want you to hear a little bit from a documentary um, on good writers that's from the Solzhenitsyn Center on YouTube. Listen to this. I had to study at school, but also at the mathematics and physics department because it was extremely dangerous to study literature in the Soviet era. It could land you in serious trouble. Furthermore, Rostov-on-the-Don is a small southern town quite different from central Russia. The Russian spoken there is not very good. 
There are no Russian landscapes. I discovered all that for the first time in 1939 at the age of 21. That's when I began to realize what I had been deprived of. So that's Solzhenitsyn describing um, everything he, he learned while he was studying. And this reminds me a lot of a friend of mine who I talk about all the time, right? This is the guy that makes my coffee in the morning. Cuban guy came from Cuba, from Havana, Cuba, on a jet ski to Key West and uh, with multiple people on the jet ski, and not all of them made it. And he um, he's a big anti-communist. He hates the communist regime, yet he's a very liberal Democrat in terms of his politics here, which, you know, baffles a lot of people. But what's interesting to me is that he um, also learned, he only left Cuba because he went to the university and trained to be a lawyer. And it was only at that level that he met a professor that started teaching him about the West and about Western civilization and what happened in life outside of Cuba. And that America wasn't this big, bad, imperialist country that was depriving people of everything like he was taught in Cuba. Now, you might think AOC, the squad, so many people in America that tend to lean to the left, that uh, ideologically align themselves with um, uh, left leaning politics would agree that America's is an oppressive place. But, you know, for every one of them, I could probably find you a thousand people who found nothing but opportunity in the United States. And this is coming from me. I'm not even an immigrant. My parents are born citizens, but there's nothing but opportunity in the United States, right? My parents didn't graduate from college. I ended up going to college, dropping out because I didn't like their liberal stance. But I got to go to college, went to a pretty good college, NYU, New York University, crazy liberal place, but still a pretty good school. And uh, ended up doing okay for myself in life, right? And, and nobody thought I was going to make it. If you talk to the people in my high school, they, they thought, like many of my friends, I'd go on to be a drug dealer or become incarcerated. And, and it goes to show you that all you have to do is have some will, you know, have a decent set of parents and, and you know, just put a little bit of effort into it, uh, into doing better into not being silent in the face of evil like Solzhenitsyn was talking about when he wrote. Now, he was talking about studying literature and how dangerous that was because in Soviet Russia, you know, if you became enlightened, this was dangerous. Again, he was born in 1918, so this was uh, a different time of life. And, uh, and by the way, the quote I was reading is from the book The Gulag Archipelago, which he, uh, in which he describes his time in the Gulag. But he goes on to talk about the importance of his faith and how faith is really what hurts and damages a movement like the Marxist movement, a movement like communism, because it really can't exist in a place where there is a solid fundamental base of faith, of, of uh, religion, of belief in God. It just, they can't coexist. And, uh, and there's a reason for that. And even Marx himself knew it, and I'll get into that in a moment. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here. I am Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. This is America. He's brown, he's bald, and he's breaking it down. Oh, he's so handsome. What's his name? Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez at Rich Valdez with an S on all of the social media. And by the way, if you haven't checked out my nightly radio show, please do. Uh, America at Night with Rich Valdez and the website for that, richvaldezamericaatnight.com, richvaldezamericaatnight.com. We do it every single night. We broadcast out of New York all across America, actually into Alaska, which is pretty cool. And um, I'm going to continue – Take three. We're going to continue our uh, discussion on Alexander Solzhenitsyn from the Soviet Union. He was a big uh, Soviet critic and a great writer and uh, was a, a 
a big thinker, anti-communist thinker that really uh, informed the masses. Many say that he's one of the, uh, the, the forefathers of what caused the Soviet Union to fall eventually with Reagan's famous speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. So um, anyway, he talked about his faith and Solzhenitsyn um, makes it clear that he, what got him through the gulag was his faith. And in fact, it's faith itself that kind of in, in insulates you from indoctrination by way of the Marxists, right? This Marxist indoctrination that you get as part of being a citizen. And again, that's, that's how it worked there. You know, you had to participate in, in Marxist training in order to, to buy into the culture so that you could participate in society. That's just how it was. And it wasn't until he learned and read more literature and learned more that realized, hey, this thing is a whole sham. It's kind of like my buddy who was in Cuba who realized, wow, there's more than one TV channel in the United States. In, in Cuba, they had one TV channel and it was run by the state. And it's just so interesting when all you do is say, no, the Americans are bad, they're imperialist, they're capitalist pigs, we're the good guys, we're the communists, we're the ones helping the people, we're the ones helping the poor, and they're just enriching themselves and starting wars and being bad. And that rhetoric is what you hear in Cuba, it's what you heard in the Soviet Union, but now it's what you hear right in the United States. Matter of fact, there are members of Congress like AOC, all out crazy herself, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who espouse similar rhetoric. But going back to Solzhenitsyn, I want to give you um, the opportunity to hear this clip of audio of him uh, in this documentary, again, from the Solzhenitsyn Center. You can find it on YouTube if you want to watch the whole thing. It's called Great Writers, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he uh, discusses the importance of his faith. Listen to this. You see, in the hostile and atheist climate of the Soviet era, I had a strictly religious upbringing. And I defended this right. I fought for this right. Afterwards, I was forced to hide my convictions since, for example, people had discovered that I went to church. At school, the crucifix I wore was torn from my neck. It was a way of saying, look at him, he's the enemy. And yet I coped with this difficult period at school. But towards the end of school, when I was 17 or thereabouts, they began to teach us about dialectic, historical materialism, and I was totally captivated, completely won over. And I became an atheist and a Marxist. However, I did not immediately realize what this actually involved. I was to discover this much later. First, I went off to the front, and even there, at least initially, I thought along these lines. So Solzhenitsyn makes it very clear that it's this battle, again, between good and evil, that really um, explains Marxism and just about everything else, and in my opinion. And, and I think it's, it's an accurate depiction, right? Um, Professor Paul Gengor from Grove City College He's got an excellent book called The Devil and Karl Marx. And, um, and it's not just to, to poo-poo the name of Karl Marx. It's because there's, there's similarities here, right? There's, it's Marx that brings up the church and faith and all of that. Uh, he writes, far too many people, however, separate Marx the man from the evils wrought by the oppressive ideology and theory that bears his name. 
This is a grave mistake. Not only did the horrific results of Marxism follow directly from Marx's twisted ideas, but the man himself penned some downright devilish things. Well before Karl Marx was writing about the hell of communism, he was writing about hell itself. Quote from Marx, Thus heaven I've forfeited. I know it full well. Now, Marx wrote that he forfeited heaven and he knew it full well in a poem in 1837, a decade before he even wrote the Communist Manifesto. And he went on to say, my soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. Now, that certainly seemed to be the perverse destiny for Marx's ideology, which to date is responsible for the death of over 100 million souls in the 20th century alone. No other theory in all of history has led to the deaths of so many innocent people. However, the father of lies has got to be involved. There's no other way, right? At long last, here in the book by Professor Ken Gore, is a close and diabolical look at, or a, a, a look at the diabolical side of Karl Marx, a side of, of the man himself whose fascination with the devil and his domain would echo into the 20th century and continue to wreak havoc today. And it does. We see it all the time. It's a, a very unfortunate portrait of a man and an ideology with a chilling retrospective look on evil that really should never have been let out from the pits of hell. And a fascinating look at, at how uh, there there's so much evil attached to this ideology, um, which, again, I think people don't give enough um, – enough credit uh, to to how, how deep of a thinker Marx was and how he himself tied these things directly to forfeiting his soul, right? And, and saying, you know, his soul that was once true to God is now chosen for hell because he'd opted this lifestyle of, uh, of communism. So fast forward to today, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with somebody who... Um, is a, a, a strong and direct adherent of Joseph Stalin, who was, again, a, a strong and direct adherent of Marx. And that's Vladimir Putin. Putin's not uh, some sort of Boris Yeltsin. He's not. He's not that kind of guy. Yeltsin was like, yeah, let's, let's drink beers and talk to Reagan. Even Gorbachev was, um, you know, a, a little bit more mainline, or at least appeared to be more mainline, even though he was a kind of kind of a climate Marxist, but Putin, Putin's in big trouble as of today, right? And today's St. Patrick's Day, Friday, the 17th of March, the International Criminal Court, ICC, on Friday issued an arrest warrant for the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, over his alleged involvement in the abduction of Ukrainian children and teenagers. Wow. Why would he be doing that? I don't know. Um, why it matters? Well, the arrest warrants for Putin and another Russian official present uh, some serious problems for him, and it represents some of the first international charges since Russia's invaded Ukraine. The ICC issued an arrest warrant for Maria Alexvenia Belovla, that's Russia's commissioner for children's rights, over similar allegations. Now, more than 40 countries that are a party to the ICC had requested its intervention, according to the New York Times, which first reported a, a, a report on forthcoming war crimes cases and warrants. Now, the Kremlin 
has previously said that it does not recognize the ICC or its jurisdiction. And again, they're entitled to do that. And that they um, they will strictly um, do what they feel is right in you know for them. And again, they have that right. They're a sovereign state. But here's what's going on. So Russia systemically relocates uh, about 6,000 children from Ukraine to Russia at the start of this war. And this is what they're looking into. Many of the children who were taken to camps or other facilities uh, engaged in pro-Russia re-education efforts. So again, part of the, the strategy here was we're going to take your kids and we're going to indoctrinate them, what they call re-education in these concentration camps. Crazy stuff. I mean, I thought this stuff only happened in China, but apparently it's a Soviet tactic. And that's why they figured out how to do it in the United States. The re-education camp here, sadly, is the public school system, which has been taken over by people like Randy Weingarten in the teachers' union, which has way more power than parents, way more power than teachers, way more parent, uh, power than superintendents. Uh, the teachers' union pretty much is ruling the roost right now. And that's why every school that you could think of, and maybe not every school, but more and more schools each day, and most, I would say, in very progressive areas, are have abandoned the idea of teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, and they're teaching gender ideology and infinite number of genders and and how America's bad, and we actually started in 1619, not 1776, and if you're a cisgender white male, then you are the culprit, you're the problem, and the solution is reparations, $5 million per person, not 40 acres and a mule. Now, Kareem Khan, he's the ICC's chief prosecutor, uh, he's indicated that the alleged abductions were a priority for his investigators. Russian missile strikes have frequently targeted energy facilities, water supplies, and residential buildings, which uh, they also say is a war crime. And then there's the forced deportation or forcible transfer of people uh, from land that they they live in, right? So forcing people out of Crimea, forcing people out of uh, the Donbass region where they, where they want to, um, you know, take over. So all of these are the, the, the different charges that are are being levied against Russia. Ukraine is not challenging any of these um, these charges against Russia. Uh, let's see if there's anything else here you need to know. There's a few things in here. The Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told the Russian state media on Friday that the Russia considers the ICC warrants null and void because it does not recognize the court's jurisdiction. So they say, forget you, forget your court, we're not involved. Peskov did not comment on any crimes the court alleged against Mr. Putin or Ms. Luvova Belova, nor did Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova. Uh, as for the other woman, Lvova Belova, she praised uh, the arrest warrant against her, framing it as the international community, recognizing her work of rescuing children from a war zone. And uh, again, it makes sense to me. When you're all about ideology and indoctrination, you're always going to want to go after the kids. That's why these drag queen story hours started out as, you know, fifth grade, fourth grade, third grade, then they became kindergarten. Now they're saying, invite your babies. You've got toddlers going to these drag queen story hours because if you see that from when you're a toddler, when you see it when you're 40, you're not going to balk at it. You're like, oh, it's pretty normal. Doesn't everybody go to a drag queen brunch? I mean, don't all men dress up as women? And 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 this is how you normalize something that in, in actuality is not even a mainstream idea. Right, most men I know, and I think I know. I don't know if I, if I know a hundred men. Zero percent of them are drag queens. Now that doesn't mean that um, you know, that there aren't drag queens in society. But I'm just saying it's not prevalent. Just RuPaul is RuPaul, right? He's famous because he's RuPaul. There's not a, if there were a ton of RuPauls, 
he wouldn't be famous. That's just how that works. You know, you have to be somewhat unique, I think, to, to gain that type of popularity. Anyway, uh, we'll continue our conversation on all of that stuff. By the way, if you get this pretty soon, you could check me out on Sunday morning on Newsmax. I'll be discussing drag queens on the morning program on Newsmax TV. So check that out. And if you miss it, don't worry. You could catch the video. I'll post the video on my social media at Rich Valdez with an S. Now, we're going to talk about Secretary Janet Yellen straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. This is America. The 45th president, Donald Trump, thinks it's an honor to speak with Rich Valdez. Oh, very good. Yeah. an honor. Thanks, Rich. The honor is all yours. Conservative talk with a dash of sofrito. Now, here's Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Rich Valdez here with you. And uh, it's Brad, I'm glad to be back in the podcast chair for This Is America. It's been a while. And as you know, we typically don't do any interviews on This Is America. It's typically all commentary on the news of the day and some bigger philosophical topics and a little bit of historical analysis. And that's kind of how I always like to do it. Uh, I always have fun looking at one, uh, not one or some of the the glaring topics that face the culture. And then somehow I always find a way to connect the dots to Marxism, right? That's just what I do. And I guess, um, you know, at heart, maybe I'm a, I I suffer from McCarthyism, right? Um, But I do believe that the Red Scare wasn't a scare. The Red Scare was a warning. And sadly, uh, many people didn't take it seriously. And here we are today with um, so much of what they predicted would happen actually happening and people are scratching their heads thinking, how do we fix it? And I don't know if there is a fixing. You know, at this point, I think it's kind of like when you have those forest fires where they're like, why, why can't you put it out? And they're like, yeah, we're just trying to contain it. But they don't even think about trying to put it out because it's just too pervasive. They kind of got let it burn. And I, I think that might be where we are, sad, sad to say. Um, you know, it's one thing to be optimistic. It's another thing to be smart. And I think sometimes it, they're not one and the same. I wish they were... Um, one and the same all the time. But I think right now we've got to be optimistic and realize some of this stuff is going to get burnt down. Some of our cultures, institutions be burnt down. The other day I had a, a sidebar conversation with my radio producer, who's my producer today, actually, for the podcast. And we were talking about how, um, you know, Christianity has has diminished greatly in the United States. And and my, my argument was with one of the callers who took exception to something that somebody said about America's Christian founding or whatever it was, and and saying that, you know, the, the founders, you know, we, we, we over-perfumed them with Christianity, but they weren't really uh, real Christians. And my argument was, I, I don't believe that to be true. I mean, you look at the writings uh, of so many of these men, even Ben Franklin, who was a, a known deist who said, look, yeah, I believe in God, but, you know, he was, you know, a liberal by many standards today. Even he, you know, had a, a very strong uh, faith. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, these guys were led and guided by their faith. And it, it's fascinating to me how if you look at just every writing, every courtroom that was built that had the Ten Commandments, we have to move the statue of the Ten Commandments out of the way now because they're in public courtrooms and people are freaking out about it. But the reality is that's that's how everything started. Everything was stems from the Enlightenment. And it's the Enlightenment uh, of these men that were enlightened toward God uh, who, who informed the thinking of our founders, guys like John Locke, guys like uh, Sir Edmund Burke, um, Montesquieu. So there were so many. So it, to me, it's... Um, it's uh, a useless or a weak debate 
to go down that road uh, to say that that's happened in the last 50 years. I think you're 100% correct. Anybody who says, you know, religion and faith in, in Jesus has declined in the United States in the last 50 years, 60 years, 100% sure has. But to say that it started from a p- place that was weak, no. We started a whole war to fight England over not praying in their church and not paying their taxes. I mean, so I think those are so strong in in the body politic at the time of the revolution, those issues and, and that, that resentment towards those things, that uh, it started a, an entire revolution. So I don't think that we could say that those guys weren't solid. But that's where we are today. Today we're in that depraved nation that Solzhenitsyn talked about where we've ignored evil and now it's back, you know, a thousandfold. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it all over the place. We're seeing every day there's a new teacher molesting a student. Every day there's a new um, person being arrested. Yesterday uh, on the show, we talked about a guy who was chemically castrated for his uh, sex crimes against a child. And these things just seem more prevalent. Now, of course, we can make the argument they've always happened. We just didn't know about it because we didn't have the internet. We weren't so connected. I'm sure there's truth there. But there was also a time when nobody had a camera. There was also a time when you could beat the crap out of somebody and nobody had a ring camera. The cop wasn't wearing a camera on his shirt. Nobody had a cell phone camera. So guess what? You got the crap beat out of you. And again, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just making a point that, uh, and this is another reason crime is so prevalent in big cities, including New York City, is because people can do bad things now and he with the bigger set of balls is the one that gets away with everything. Saying, oh, I don't care. I'll just put on a mask. You're not going to come after me anyway because of my status as a minority or my this or my that. Or even if I get arrested, I've got prosecutors that don't want to see people that look like me in prison. So guess what? They're going to give me a chance to walk. And and this is just truth. I'm not making it up. Look at the stats. Just look at real life. So we're in a bad place today because of, uh, of you know, not because of cameras, but because we've created systems that we can literally destroy by using that system. It's a very Stalin-esque thing, but that's what it is. So we're destroying law and order, the justice system. Justice is being destroyed by district attorneys. We can blame George Soros all we want, but ultimately it's really about that. It's about people not doing their job. And I didn't, I was, that was just a tangent I went on. I really wanted to talk about the people that aren't doing their jobs within the government. You know, somebody who was once uh, a White House economic advisor, somebody who was once chairman of the Fed or chairwoman of the Fed, Janet Yellen, who's now Treasury Secretary, you would think that she would um, have a better understanding of what's going on in the um, in the markets. But the problem is it's not about understanding. This is about the fundamental disconnect that we have as people. There are some people that live their lives a certain way. I'm going to describe the way. It goes like this. I make X amount of dollars. I have to pay for my car. I have to pay for my housing, whether it's rent or a mortgage. And I have to pay for some food. And we probably have some other bills like, you know, some cell phones, um, maybe cable or Netflix or something like that, some sort of entertainment, um, you know, things like that. And then some spending money. And then, you know, hopefully you're saving the rest of your money if you make enough to do all of those things. But if you don't, then you have to start figuring out how to budget better. But the problem is the government doesn't even think that way. They just say, oh, no, you know what? We're going to do all of this, but we don't have money for that. Well, we'll figure it out. And they start to say things like, well, this idea of how you're going to pay for it, this is a very outdated idea. That's a very, it's a very uh, cis male, uh, white, straight white male type of thing to say. And it's racist. No, it's not racist, but that's what they'll allege, that your idea that you have to have money in the bank to pay for things is wrong. 
So they'll just start making these expenditures, and guess what? They'll borrow it. And if there's a debt limit, they'll say, hey, let's raise the debt limit. And they'll continue to spend and spend and spend, and we're reaping the reward of the seed of debt, and that's called inflation. We've been rewarded with inflation, and it sucks. And the more that we spend, the more that we will use quantitative easing to print more money, it will devalue the more money, the more inflation we'll have, and the less the dollar is worth. This is literally cutting off your nose in spite of your face. It's stupid and it doesn't work. That's why we're now imploding our economy through a recession. And they're trying to do it little by little so that you don't feel it as much uh, with little rate hikes here and little rate hikes there. But People are starting to feel it, and the unscrupulous amongst us are feeling it the most. Banks like the Silicon Valley Bank, who had a focus on on anything but making money, and clearly what happened? They're failing. I mean, and you can't make this up. I wish I had these clips of audio, but they they had videos, both Signature Bank and um, SVB, where there was such a focus, like the guys who ran the bank, the CEO and and the the rest of the C-suite level people – had videos that they made for commercials where they were saying things like, no, we won't fail. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure everything's paid. Everybody will be okay if we fail. You know, like, how do you make a commercial like that so tongue-in-cheek and then you actually have a bank failure? It almost makes you think, did they know ahead of time? Did they care? Did they already have a deal where they said, hey, let's get all this money and then, you know, we'll blow it all and whatever. You know, the government will bail us out. We'll call it a FDIC insurance. It won't be a bailout like AIG back in the days. It'll be like whatever. I think the whole thing is crazy, but um, Secretary Yellen, she uh, sat down for a hearing, and um, this was on Wednesday, and let me tell you, um, a lot of people asked a lot of questions of her. Uh, The first one that I've got here that I want you to hear is Janet Yellen at a hearing on Thursday, excuse me, and she was saying that the debt ceiling simply must be raised and that they will not negotiate with Republicans on the full faith and credit of the United States. Listen to this. Can you commit at least to negotiate with Republicans as we try to work forward on finding some aspects of fiscal restraint to put into the debt ceiling discussion? Senator Crapo, the president has indicated that he considers it critically important to have a sustainable and responsible fiscal path. And he's put on the table in the budget um, a number of ideas, many ideas about how to grow the economy while also cutting deficits. And this is a matter that he is very prepared to discuss and negotiate with Republicans, but it can't be a condition for raising the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling simply must be raised And to put at risk uh, the full faith and credit of the United States and to threaten to cause an economic and financial catastrophe isn't an acceptable um, requirement. Okay. So now I think two things are at play here. Number one, I think there is a convolution, right? So I think she's convoluting the fact that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, that we're somehow – putting at risk the full faith and credit of the United States. Those, those are two different things. Uh, I think you can – the full faith and credit of the United States is, is constitutional and it has nothing to do with the debt ceiling, right? So not raising your debt limit doesn't mean you won't pay your debt. And, and this is the part they fail to understand. You know, if you have 
$2,000 a month in income and, and you now want to borrow a thousand dollars in a line of credit from your bank, you can't go to your bank and say, listen, if you don't lend me this money, I'm, I'm going to default on my bills. I'm going to go bankrupt. They don't care. Right? They don't care. It's, it's not their responsibility to, to offer you more money in the line of, in, as a line of credit so that you can go ahead and spend the way you want to spend. And this is the same way here, right? Your commitment to pay your bills has nothing to do. It's separate and apart from taking out that line of credit to raise your debt limit per se. So, um, you know, this convolution I think is, it's shameful and maybe she really believes that, but it's, it's not true. It's not one and the same. And the other thing that we have going here is uh, that we're threatening to cause an economic and financial catastrophe. Uh, now, I don't think that anybody's threatening to cause an economic or financial catastrophe. I think what they're saying is if we should not borrow more money and we should figure out how to do this with the money that we have without raising taxes, without borrowing more. And in the, the world of, of Yellen and those that think like her, I'm going to call them, for lack of a better word, Democrats, they believe that doing such a thing will somehow cause a catastrophe. No, it doesn't cause a, a catastrophe for maybe the guy that doesn't want to get, that won't get some money right now, or you won't be able to spend as much. And that's where it becomes catastrophic when you tell a politician they can't spend anymore. When you say, what do you mean? But I need money for my Homeland Security bill. I need money for the bridges in my district. I need this and I need that. Everybody has a pork project. And if you put a limit on those things, it's, oh boy, then I can't spend as much. They start wringing their hands. They get really upset. Oh boy, that's what's going on. That's what we're seeing here. And this is the problem. So I think we need to uh, take a closer look at this. And yes, uh, Senator Crapo is correct in this one. She needs to negotiate with the Republicans so that we, um, we don't have this problem. But again, she's not realistic. And when you hear her voice, to me, it sounds she's so out of touch. <laughs> she sounds like she's way, uh, what's the term Don Lemon uses? Beyond her prime, past her prime. I believe that Janet Yellen is past her prime. Um, I guess if I say it, it's a problem. When he says it, it's okay. Um, Janet Yellen at a hearing yesterday, she says, I don't believe the deficit spending is the main cause of inflation. No, lady? That's funny because we only got there when we spent $6 trillion. Listen to this. Would you agree those are the top three causes of inflation? Uh, deficit spending, high energy costs, and supply dislocations? I don't believe that deficit spending is one of the main causes you, you of don't? inflation. I mean, inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. Well, so when, you, when you're printing all this out, so do you know in the first three fiscal years of the Biden administration, you know how much the total deficit spending is going to be? We had um, a, an economic collapse that was caused by right, the Right, and we were, we were certainly coming out of that because there's all this pent-up demand and a sloshing around of trillions of dollars. 100% right. Right, you tell me. During the pandemic, everybody stayed home and saved a whole lot of money. And in addition to that, there were all these checks going out they were called, what were they called? Stimmies, right? The stimulus check, this check, that check. Some people got three or four of them. You know, matter of fact, I, at the time, I worked at a radio station in New York City owned by a billionaire. And I remember him coming on the radio and saying, I got one of those checks. <laughs> and he was shocked that he got a check for like $2,500. And he was like, why would they send me a check? You know, he's like, I have to pay tax on that now. It's like unnecessary tax burden. He was complaining about the check. Point was, 
Uh, that's 100% right. There were trillions of dollars in all this money that we'd sent out there. People were looking to spend things uh, by, it wasn't a pandemic that caused the economic collapse that we had. It was the the way we responded to that collapse by Dr. Fauci and Deborah Burks and so many others saying, shut it down 15 days to flatten the curve, which turned into, I don't know, a year and a half of staying home, which broke people mentally. It broke people emotionally and it broke people financially. And the nerve of Janet Yellen to come here and say, I don't think so, that that, that wasn't, that it's causing the inflation. No, ma'am, you're wrong. You're wrong and you're borderline not that smart if you really think you're telling the truth. And I, I tend to think she's not telling the truth. I, but again, if, if this is the fundamental difference of opinion that we have, then I'm going to go with saying she should probably read a book or two on economics. And it's a shame when a guy who dropped out of NYU uh, it has a little bit more of an economic understanding of what's going on in the United States than the actual Treasury Secretary. I think not. I think she's full of it, and I think she needs to come clean. Anyway, more to come straight ahead. I am Rich Valdez. We're about to wrap this up. This is America. This is America. He's making podcasting great again. This is America with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. So uh, lots of discussion today. We talked about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That was terrific. We'll do a little bit more of that. And I'll also um, bring back, I like to do it at least once a year, the um, the ideological subversion discussion from Yuri Bezmenov. He's terrific. Um, you, you know, if I do it on the radio or I do it on the podcast, I'm sure you've heard it before. But I like to revisit it at least once a year because it's interesting to me from year to year to see how how we've progressed towards the subversion of so many um, uh, uh, institutions ideologically. And in terms of good or bad, it's always bad, right? It's always in the wrong direction when we see how the media has been subverted by those that you know carry the, the Marxist uh, water barrel, uh, the, the subversion of of not just the media, but now our, our judicial system. You look at what's going on here where they're about to do the riskiest indictment ever, super thin, super flimsy, on the shakiest legal ground ever. They're going to indict Donald Trump, right, former president of the United States, for paying back his lawyer for expenses that he paid of $130,000 to Stormy Daniels uh, for a non-disclosure agreement in you know in in lieu of her silence that was the agreement they made these things happen all the time i think um many of us have dealt in one way or another if you're in a corporate environment with a non-disclosure agreement nda and somehow they're going to try and pin this on trump as somehow being illegal either how he paid back his lawyer and they're going to get his lawyer who turned on him wrote a book called betrayal or something like that and who is himself a convicted felon who was in jail the guy was in jail and he's out of jail. And the only reason he got out of jail is because he agreed to talk bad about Trump. So now they're going to use this star witness, uh, uh, a convicted felon who clearly has a bone to pick against Donald Trump. This is their only witness. And this is what they're going to hang their um, their whole case on. And he's been making the rounds. The guy was on CNN. He was on MSNBC saying things that Donald Trump is a narcissist and he's this and he's that. Again, if I were going to court and I was going to testify against somebody, I would try to be an objective witness. At least, you know, you want to play the part, right? 
don't go out there bad-mouthing the guy because they're going to pull you to, to shreds. They're going to tear you to shreds on the witness stand. So I, I don't think they get the conviction against Trump. I think they're going to indict him purely for political reasons to say, hey, we, we indicted Trump on X, Y, and Z and hoping that that will put a 20% dent in his polling because he seems to be polling pretty good into the, almost the 70s, like 69%. Uh, he's doing well. He's doing well against DeSantis. He's doing well uh, against Biden in some matchups. There was one that came out where it said Biden beats both of them, beats DeSantis and Trump, whichever one runs. Uh, don't know which of these polls I can believe. All I can do is talk to my guys that have come before me that were in the Reagan administration who told me there wasn't a single poll until like a week before um, – uh, pre- excuse me, election day for president back in 1980, where they said Reagan's got a shot. And I, I was here in 2016. I saw the whole thing where they said, oh, there's no way he could. Oh, he's a reality star. Oh, that'll never happen. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it happened. Why? Because people like what Trump says. Not everybody is, you know, under 40 years old. Not everybody uh, believes everything they're told in the media. There are people that have lived life and realized, you know what? Oh, my gosh. Yes, we like making money. Oh, my gosh. This is good. Uh, yeah, it's a good idea to fight your enemies. It's a good idea to, to hang tough. It's a good idea to repeat what Reagan did, things that even Kennedy talked about when it comes to uh, tax revenues. And those things worked, but they only benefit the people. They don't benefit the government. They don't benefit the deep state. They don't benefit the politicians who've got their hands out. So you got to pick which side you're on. And for many in Washington, they've already picked their side. They're on the side of money not the side of the people, and that's where we need to be. You know, I always close out this show saying, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything, right? That's Hamilton. And the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Good men, that's you and me. That's all of us, the men and women of we the people. And that's Sir Edmund Burke, Lord Acton, and others who have been quoted saying that. So now's the time. You've got to stand up for America more now than you've ever stood up for her before. Take care, America. Hasta la próxima. I'm Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.